Hello, hello. Good to see everyone this evening. So glad that you're with us as we've gathered together to worship our supreme God. Welcome to all of you that are joining us on uh, on our live stream. We're so glad that you're with us as well. Well, let's begin this evening by worshiping our supreme God. You were seated high before there was light. Through you and for you, everything was made. All authority has been given unto you. You're the head over all, the King of Kings. You reign. Supreme over everything, you deserve our worship. You deserve it, Lord. You deserve our worship, Jesus. Love and adoration. You deserve it, Lord. All our highest praise is Jesus. You make visible, invisible. When at last you came to earth, that blessed one. And it won't be long. Every knee is gonna fall. And every tongue confess you, Lord of all. You reign supreme over everything. You deserve our worship. You deserve it, Lord. You deserve our worship, Jesus. Love and adoration. Praises, Jesus, 
As we just sang, we stand in awe as we're reminded of your great work on our behalf. And so we give you our praise from the depths of our being this evening because you are worthy of it. Not here to ask for anything, but just to worship your holy, awesome, incredible name. Who else would rocks cry out to worship? Whose glory taught the stars to shine? Perhaps creation longs to have the words to sing. But this joy is mine. With a thousand hallelujahs, we magnify your name. You alone deserve the glory, the honor and the praise. Lord Jesus, this song is forever yours. A thousand hallelujahs and a thousand more. Who else would die for our redemption? Whose resurrection means our rise. There isn't time enough to sing of all you've done. I have eternity to try. With a thousand hallelujahs, we magnify your name. You alone deserve the glory, the honor, and the praise. Lord Jesus, this song is forever yours. A thousand hallelujahs and a thousand Glory, the honor and the praise, Lord 
desiring to do nothing but to please you. Nothing more than to put a smile on your face. We look forward to the day when we will hear well done. But until then, while we're here, we just want to worship you. We want to live for you. We want to see others join us. With a thousand hallelujahs, we magnify your name. You alone deserve the glory, the honor and the praise. Oh, Jesus, this song is forever yours. A thousand Welcome. I want to encourage you guys to uh, join with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as we continue our journey through the Bible. I was looking and, and had Rachel kind of update our, our schedule. And we should finish going through the Bible October, maybe November of 2023. <laughs> but that, uh, Lord willing, you know. It'd be kind of cool if Jesus came back, you know, like when we were in that revelation period, right? So we'd be studying about it. Speaking of which, we are, we are continuing the sign up for the, the seven churches of Revelation. I want to encourage you all to uh, consider joining us on that trip. It's this October, uh, the 2nd through the 11th. And if you go to Rome with us, then it'll be the 14th. We have a number of people are already signed up. Also, uh, just a reminder, I was talking with uh, the team earlier and I think that uh, we need to bring a, uh, a, an end date for the Romania uh, or the Ukraine donation that's going to go to Romania. 
Um, we have quite a bit of money that has been raised, but we, it's not going to do us any good here. So by the end of next week, we need everything brought in so it can get wired. It'd be nice to send the wire uh, transfer over next week to be able to do that. So if you're considering giving, we want to make sure that all those donations are in because uh, once, once we send the wire transfer over, um, then it'll just sit in an account for about a year because we only wire money over to Romania once a year. Um, they had uh, three vehicles go out to uh, Ukraine loaded with all kinds of stuff that uh, they bought with the resources that we had already sent over. And they were hoping to bring into Ukraine full vehicles, and they did, and then bring them back full, full of people. We haven't got the report yet on, on how many they were able to bring. We know that uh, quite a few, though, that are there. Tonight we're going to be taking a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. As Paul continues to deal with issues within the church of Corinth, this is probably one of the most um, hotly attested uh, passages that Paul would read or would write about, and it has to do with marriage and divorce and singleness. And in our world today, it's, it's just as important as it was in Paul's day. There are so many questions, and I get all kinds of questions. Well, what does the Bible say about marriage? What does the Bible say about divorce? And, 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 and what about singleness and all of these things? And so within this, Paul is addressing these new topics. We know it's a transition because in seven chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Now, or it's a transition, and he enters into new topics concerning questions that the church of Corinth had written to him about. And the church had been around for a number of years, but they were struggling now as they were sliding back into some, some carnality and some issues that were going on, and, and they just didn't know how to navigate it well. And so Paul is writing in this next section on dealing with marriage, and then next week we'll pick up on Christian liberty, and then we're going to move into the spiritual gifts and some of the abuses and the practices of the spiritual gifts there in 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14. So we know that Paul's making a transition. One of the things that, that Paul is exercising is, it's called pastoral authority. What pastoral authority is, is, is Paul has a specific authority as the pastor or the shepherd of the, of the church of Corinth as an apostle that planted the church so he can exercise pastoral authority for correction, for rebuke, for instruction and those things. So he holds kind of a higher standard within that. And so within this, he's going to address some of the challenges and he's going to disciple the church because they had fallen into carnality and, and allowing too much of the world to come into the church. And so in exercising pastoral authority, what Paul is going to be doing is he's going to recalibrate the church. Now, we all need to be recalibrated every now and then. We, we can get off track so easy. And so it's really important for us to be holding what we think with an open mind, open hand, to be changed and challenged. And the challenge for the Church of Corinth was their living or their Christian living in a secular world. With the challenges of Corinth, with the idol worship and the uh, immora, immorality that was going on, the influences... The problem is the believers in Corinth, much like our world today, is the church was becoming secularized. So here's a question for you. Is it dangerous when the church becomes secularized? Sure. Because we start adopting the world's philosophies, the world ideology. And truth gets watered down, and there are no absolutes within um, a, a secularized church. 
And so he's going to recalibrate their faith journey, much like what we need to do often. And what we need to use is the Word of God to recalibrate our lives. What does God's Word say versus what I think or what the world thinks? We need to come back to right thinking. And so Paul is going to address what's called orthodoxy, or the the right thinking that is divinely inspired from God's Word, from the Holy Spirit. So your orthodoxy, or your right thinking, is biblical, which translates into what's called orthopraxy, or the right living. So when you recalibrate your life, you're saying, well, what does God's Word teach, and then how do I live as a result of what God's Word says? The problem that Corinth had run into, and as I said earlier, the problem that the church runs into is when our orthodoxy gets watered down or it gets mishmashed with something that's convenient and we fall into this thing of relativism where God's word doesn't hold authority anymore, but but opinions do or even the world. And so Paul's going to deal with a tough topic and and I'm not saying that 1 Corinthians 7 is PG, but it's it's got some... PG kind of stuff in there, dealing with sexuality and, and, and sexual immorality and, and being able to work through this. And really, Paul needs to recalibrate the church and how to honor God in the marriage relationship, both with the sexuality, because immorality was, was just running amok within the church in our, and having those right relationships. Now, 1 Corinthians 7 is not a comprehensive teaching on everything that is marriage, everything that is divorce, and everything that is singleness. But what he's doing is he's addressing those issues in in light of the context of what they were working through. Some people will say, well, you know, Paul was a stick in the mud. He he was single and he, he thought, and if you read 1 Corinthians 7, you might get the impression that Paul hated marriage. That he that he believed that everybody should be single, and the fact is he did. But it wasn't that he was against marriage, but Paul lived and taught and discipled and trained and established the church in the context of the imminent return of Jesus. In other words, Jesus is going to come back at any moment, so we need to be you know, laser-focused on the return of Jesus, and so some of these things need to be set aside. So Paul's not against marriage. He teaches a lot about marriage. But what he does teach and what's the embedded or the the implicit message in 1 Corinthians 7 isn't really so much about divorce or marriage or singleness. It is remain where you're at and and don't try to get out of where you're at. If God's called you in that condition, then remain in that condition, whatever that condition is, whether you're married or you're single widowed or divorced within that. Remain in that position. Why? Because God's called you out of that and be ready that, that you need to be focused on serving the Lord. And as I said, Paul prefers singleness, as we're going to see. And, and you've got to ask the question, why did he prefer singleness? Because single people are the most mobile people within the church. They don't have all the world's affairs that kind of drag them down. They don't, have, they don't have spouses. They don't have children. They can, they can serve the Lord pretty easily. Um, and so within this, he, he wants to uh, affirm the singleness, but he also wants to affirm marriage because of the sensual culture that people were living in. 
and we're going to talk about how God had designed marriage and sex within marriage, and it was a good thing. So as the Corinthian culture was driven in their culture by idolatry and, and the sexual worship, the Christians that were called out of Corinth, they were called out of the world, but they still had to live there. And so there is this pressure to, to, to move into this mold. So let's jump right into it, and let's take a look at, at verses 1 through 7 as, the, as Paul deals with some general principles about marriage. He says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. <clears throat> the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body. But the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by my own concession, not command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one is in this manner and another in that. So Paul starts out in verse 1 and he says, Now, which is that transition, concerning the things which you wrote about, what did you write about? And this is the question. It, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. What had happened in Corinth as they were coming to faith, one of the things that was coming about in a big debate was the ascetic lifestyle. Because there was so much sexual immorality that was going on within that, they decided that in order to avoid sin altogether, we're just cutting everything off. There is absolutely no sex. And so they were, they were promoting kind of this celibate lifestyle, even within the con context of a marriage relationship. They thought, well, you know, in order to be able to, to be holy, it's good not for a man not to touch a woman or not to be intimate. The problem is, this is really hard to understand in light of God ordaining marriage. They've come to this context of it's good for a man not to touch a woman, but God had established marriage, and God had established intimacy within marriage, in the context of marriage. And Genesis 2.18 says this, it says, Then the Lord said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. When man was alone, when man was celibate, and, and woman wasn't around, God looked at Adam and said, oh, you poor pitiful thing. It's not good. Why? Because you're not complete. And I'm going to create a helpmate out of you to be with you to bring about that completion. Now, one of the things that was thought of, and it was thought of even in the early church, whether it was Augustine or others, in the monastic lifestyle, they, they determined that um, being celibate was the preferred holy status. They viewed that sexual intimacy was, was part of the immorality, and we're just not going to give light. If we, don't, if we don't open Pandora's box, then everything's going to be okay. It doesn't work that way. Within that, and we know that monastic lifestyles are, are not the cure-all, and not everybody is called to that, because there are many people that have tried to live the monastic lifestyle, 
and failed miserably because of the, the fleshly appetites that are a part of that. And so, in this, Paul is not contradicting God at all. As I said, he, he taught a lot about marriage. In fact, he uses marriage as a model or a symbol of the relationship between Christ and the church, the husband and the wife, and they come together within one relationship. And so within this, he's, he is giving his opinion on the benefit of singleness in light of the days, and we'll get to that in, in a moment. But the idea is the single person can live an undistracted life. They can, they can be really focused and, and mobile. But while it's his opinion, not everybody should remain single because within that, it, singleness is not for everybody. In fact, it's for very few people. We've got to understand that within this, Paul, is, as I said earlier, is giving, as verses 6 and 7 says, by this way of concession, not of command, I wish that every man were even as of myself. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. One is gifted with the ability and contentment of being single and others are not. I can tell you this, I do not have that gift of singleness. I would be lost without my wife. It, in, in both partner in ministry and companionship. I, I just don't have that within that. But I know people that have that, that are completely okay with it. And they have the ability to be able to, not that they wouldn't have that desire, but it's not a drive within that. So we look at this because of immorality, verse 2, each man is to have his own wife, each woman is to have her own husband. In the context of the culture, it's, it's important that you have your own. You get this relationship, one man with one woman, and that's by God's design. And marriage relationship is by design for two functions. Intimacy and procreation. That's why God had established marriage. In Genesis 1.28, says God blessed them, speaking of Adam and Eve, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over everything that moves on the earth. And then in 2.24, he says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's that act of intimacy where they come together. And, and their job is for procreation and intimacy within that relationship, to be partners. Understand, God created marriage. God created intimacy within marriage. Intimacy within marriage is the bond that brings two people, both emotionally and physically together, to become that one. By God's design, marriage is strictly between one man, one woman, forever. That is God's design. Now, I know many people in this room and those that are watching it have gone through divorce. Remember what the theme of 1 Corinthians 7 altogether is. Wherever you find yourself right now, remain there. And we'll unpack that in a minute. But God had, by design, said that marriage is to be, and, and intimacy, sexual intimacy, is to be within the context of marriage and marriage alone between one man who has his own wife and one woman who has her own husband. That is God's design. Anything outside of that is immorality. 
And, and it's judged by God. There, there, is, there is no gray area. And I know our world wants to teach something different, but I can tell you they're wrong. Because by design, God says this is the way that, that marriage should be. And so Paul addresses this concept that they had adopted, that you would be holy if you were celibate within the marriage relationship. Well, that undermines what God had said into design. Celibacy sex, or, or sexual abstinence in marriage is not only unbiblical according to God's word, but it's unpractical by design and it's inappropriate. If you are married by design, God says that the husband and wife are to be intimate together, physically and emotionally. If you remove that, then the emotional physical bond is weakened. And so what the church of Corinth was doing was thought, well, okay, we're going to be more holy if we do this. And he says, no, why? Because the problem is you develop disputes. You develop tendencies for eyes to wander. It, it is not going to help the marriage. It's going to break the marriage apart. And to take an extreme position is going to put the relationship in jeopardy. It, it is by design that the two come together and, and become one. Now, Paul says, you might take a break, but it has to be within the context of both agreeing and the break is for a specific purpose and a short period of time to seek God spiritually, as if it was a fast. But only make it for a short time. Why? Because you don't want to make it for a long time where the devil can get a foothold, where he can come in through temptation. Can you imagine being in the city of Corinth? And again, you've got to understand the text from the readers and how they would have received it with the, the temple of the goddess Diana with a thousand prostitutes where it was culturally acceptable to worship with prostitutes and, and temple prostitutes and all of that. And so, you know, John and Jane, they're taking a break so that they can see God spiritually. But the only problem is we've got all these opportunities that are all around us. So Paul says, no, that weakens the relationship. So to the married, he says, you need to maintain that relationship. You need to maintain that intimate relationship. Therefore, in verses 3 through 5, he says this, the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And then... With an imperative, he says, stop depriving one another except by this agreement. So at the time you can go to prayer. And so within this, this temptation, they were opening the door up for this, these illicit relationships within this. There are those that would say, and, and there was a culture, and, and my great-grandparents used to think this. I was always amazed because my great grandparents they had um, back they had twin beds in their bedroom. I always thought that was kind of weird, but they were like you talk about like old school. They were like really old school, you know. And they had the construct that you know sexual intimacy was just for making babies, and that was it. Within within that, but the problem with that is they had the wrong concept. It, yes, it is for procreation, but it is to maintain that intimacy. And God designed intimacy for the two to become one. It is a superglue. It is a bond that brings two people together in one within this. And 
the other thing that, that we got to understand is when that bond is separated, when there's a gap in there, then the problem is we will seek out self-gratification some other way, and that's the wrong way. Paul was very clear. I do not own my body. My wife does. My wife does not own her body. I do. But it is never a license to abuse, nor is it a license to to discredit, devalue in any way, shape, or form. It just means that that they have that that authority that is there. Within this, Paul wants to understand that when we have when we do that, what we're doing is we're rendering the authority over to that person. That other individual that's part of the oneness that is there to create that unity. And there is a mutual obligation that happens when when they operate in concert, the husband and wife together, because you're always seeking out the best for the other. And so within that, you have that. And it is not a, a demand, but it is a gift. And it is for the purpose of, of as I said earlier, unity. Um, it's a mutual belonging together. And you've got to understand, this would have been revolutionary in Paul's time in the Church of Corinth, especially in a patriarchal-driven society where women were seen as objects, not as people. Where they were seen as, as possessions to be had and demanded from. And Paul is saying, no, mister, <laughs> it's not that way. It is a mutual relationship within that. And so he commands, he says, stop depriving which again was this commonplace. Unless it was for the simple mutually agreed time for the purpose of worship. There are plenty of examples in the Old Testament where there was a fast from intimacy. For the purpose of, of preparing yourself for war or preparing yourself for, for a spiritual event or those kinds of things. To be able to be in that place. It wasn't something that was just a New Testament thing. But it, again, as I said, it's only for a short time, and it's so that temptation doesn't creep in, and, and that bond weakens. And Paul basically says, look, at, this is something that, that I'm not saying by command, but by concession. I wish everybody was like me as single. Why? Because you wouldn't have to navigate all this. Paul's desire and preference was that people would be gifted with that singleness, but they all weren't. So if you're not, that's okay. Marriage, and understand this, is a gift of God. Singleness is a gift of God. And whatever place you find yourself, just understand that's where God has you. And remain there until God changes that place for the one that is, that is single and God provides that person for you. But God may or may not do that. But the focus is, if you are married, you're still one, but you serve the Lord together. If you're single, you're one. You serve the Lord. And in both cases, who are you serving? The Lord. In whatever place you find yourself in. Which leads us to the questions that he would have in verses 8 to 16. Notice he says, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows, that it is good for them to remain even as I. 
But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn. But, the, but to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. And this is from Jesus. That the wife should not leave her husband. Parenthetical statement here. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord. I say it, so this is Paul, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through the wife, his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves... Let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? So we take a look at this next section where Paul addresses this. So he establishes the general rule for the married relationship, the bond, and maintain the bond that keeps you together. But if you find yourself saying, oh, be in that place, and he's going to unpack that a little bit more within this, to the unmarried that are struggling with their singleness. One of the difficulties in singleness is feeling like you are a second-class citizen. I've talked with so many people that, that are single, and they try to come to church, and everybody else has got, is married. They're, they all have a spouse, and they come, and they're, they're feeling left out. I don't belong. You know, I'm 30, I'm 40, I'm 50, I'm single, and I don't have kids, and where do I fit? Where do I belong? And as a church, we need to maybe check ourselves in how we address singleness and how, how we bring these people in, because they're, they have a great role within the body of Christ. But here he says, to the unmarried and to the widows, that it's good for them if they remain even as I but if they don't have self-control, get married. One of the great things that, that we find within um, some of the widows, even in the Bible, is they, they're great prayer warriors and great ministers within the church. But also, it's, it's very important to understand that if you have that, that drive, then you're not called to be single. I've, I talk with people and they go, Gary, how do I know if, if I really have the gift of singleness? And I would ask them, well... How bad do you want to be married? Well, really bad. I said, then you don't have the gift of singleness. But I know a, a, a guy who has gone to be with the Lord um, years ago, but his name was Bob Butler. And this guy, this guy is one of the people that I know that had the gift of singleness. He, he lived his whole life, never got married. And he was okay with that. And he did missions and he taught the word and just all that different. And he was okay with that. In, within this, we think about the widows. Is, is it okay to, to remain single as a widow? And the answer is absolutely yes. It is. Because again, they're mobile. But again, if they don't have self control and if they burn, and, it, and there's a lot of people that debate on that, you know, are they talking about burning in hellfire? No, it's burning with passion. It's in the context of, of the message then they should be open to whoever the Lord would bring to them. And just understand that that goes on the radar. 
And God will give you those, those, those inklings within yourself to be sensitive to that. To understand that that is the potential for you and to be able to be into that relationship. And God will give you those desires for sure. But to the married, verses 10 and 11, he says this, I give instructions, not I but the Lord. So this is from Jesus as he received, Paul received it from Jesus, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she is to remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Understand, God instituted marriage, and God hates divorce. And as his general rule is, don't get divorced. It was in this, if the wife should, should leave her husband, um, or the husband should leave the wife, there is this essence of remaining single. For what purpose? Reconciliation. To remain single. The implication is that they're leaving and they're leaving, they're leaving that, that husband or that wife uh, because of things that are going on. And there are instances where separation is necessary. We think of abusive situations. We think of falling into sin and all these different things where, where separation is necessary within that. But if you married in the Lord, it seems what Paul is saying is that if you married in the Lord, you're to stay single until reconciliation takes place and not break that bond. Or, as we'll see later... Um, in other writings, until that other person actually remarries and then you're set free from that. But within this, we've got to understand that Jesus does give allowances to, for divorce. If you were to turn in your Bibles over to Matthew 19, 9, it says this, where Jesus says this, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So Jesus says basically this, if, if there is a divorce that takes place and that spouse marries another person, then we have a permanence of immorality and adultery that has taken place because of the bond with another person. And then the first person is set free from the marriage covenant relationship within that. So what should the believing spouse do that is, that is in that divorce situation? They should remain in that place where they're just waiting for reconciliation. I know of this taking place in a couple of different people. I know, I know of, a, of a couple right now that are actually working through this. That were married and that were divorced and that are in the path of reconciliation for remarriage. I, I, and it happens. But you have to do it right. You have to do it biblically. And, and that is really looking for that reconciliation. Um, you think about this... Paul saying that the divorcee needs to remain single. Because the question is, how do you know what the Lord is doing? How do you know what the Lord is going to do within that? You don't know. The one gal that I know that did this, it took 10 years for reconciliation to take place. And she ended up remarrying her husband within that. We understand that as Jesus is, is speaking, he's speaking about this idea of immorality and adultery. In Matthew 5.32, he says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Why? Because when you remarry, you break that bond, and you enter into this adulteress. Now, can God forgive divorce? The answer is yes. So say you're a believer, and, and you get divorced, and then uh, you remarry another person. Right? Will God forgive you? 
Or are you supposed to divorce the second person and remarry the first one? I had a pastor actually teach that. I disagree with him vehemently. Why? Because 1 Corinthians says, whatever place you find yourself in, remain there. Remain in that place. And be reconciled to God and, and move forward from that place. God takes the union between a man and a woman very seriously. And it's a covenant relationship. And staying together is a spiritual work. In Matthew 19, 4 through 6, earlier on in that same chapter, when Jesus is dealing with divorce, he says this. He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Note, what therefore God has joined together, let no who? Man. Don't let man separate. In other words, it's not your option to break what God puts together within that. Jesus does leave room for an irreconcilable situation, adultery specifically. Why? Because the break of the bond of sexual intimacy breaks that covenant relationship. Can it be put back together? The answer is yes. But it takes an awful lot of work. And it takes an awful lot of commitment. And it is not for us to make that decision. We need to take care of self. So if you find yourself in that position where you are two opposites and you are, you are in that condition, if both parties are seeking the Lord, what do you think is going to happen? It's going to, they're going to come back together. If both parties are. But if I refuse to seek the Lord, then there's no way I'm going to hear from God to be reconciled to God and then reconciled to my spouse. And so what was happening here is they weren't necessarily leaving room for reconciliation within that. Now, he goes on in verses 12 to 16 to the, those that are married to an unbeliever. So what happens if you're married to an unbeliever? And here was the kind of the context of what was going on. The church of Corinth was growing. People were getting saved. And it was in the context of this whole uh, sexually immoral place. And so you had a husband and wife, and one of the two is getting saved, now married to an unbeliever. They didn't start out being believer marrying unbeliever, and we'll cover that in a minute. But it was two people that were unsaved, and now you've got a believer married to an unbeliever because they, one of them got saved in the process. You follow? So what do I do? You stay in that relationship. In Corinth, what they were doing was, in the idea of being holy, is I'm saved, now I'm leaving you. I'm saved, you're not saved, I don't want to be contaminated by your sin as you are a sinner, therefore I'm going to divorce you because you're not saved. Paul says, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. Stay in that relationship. If they are pleased, if the unbeliever is pleased to dwell with you, then you stay in that relationship. How do you know what the Lord's going to do? Why? Because you have the potential to evangelize that spouse. You have the opportunity to be able to share Jesus with that spouse through your love and your compassion. So you stay in that relationship. How long? As long as they're pleased to dwell with you. 
I did marriage counseling with a gal one one time, and it was over a couple of years. And so she she still wanted a divorce. And I remember her coming in all the time. You know, I'm going to tell you about all that he's doing. And I said, okay, but he's not here. Let's you and I talk. Well, you know, he's and I said, no, but he's not here. Let's you and I talk. So we'd have these conversations, and she was just fed up. She was looking for a divorce, and she was trying to bring in all the ammunition that was going on. And I remember it was about a, about a, almost two years after we were meeting, you know, over this periodic time. And she comes in. She goes, she goes, Pastor Carrie, I'm so happy. And I go, why? Well, because I'm finally getting that divorce. And I said, well, what happened? She goes, well, I made him sleep in the other room on the couch. We haven't been intimate for two years. And I just, I just treated him like the heathen dog that he is. I said, no wonder he left you. No wonder. It, this isn't justifiable Amen. within this. And she, she just looked at me and she says, what do you mean? I said, you ran him out of the house. You didn't love him into the kingdom. You're going to have to deal with God over this. You forced this guy out. The key is to be in that relationship and, and to see what God's going to do within that relationship. We know that believers are to marry other believers in the Lord. In, verse, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, it says this, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? So if you're going to get married, make sure you marry in the Lord. One who is a widow that loses a spouse, Paul says that widow can remarry, but note, he says, then marry in the Lord. So you're to marry that, that believer. Now again, this is not to bring down condemnation on anybody. Because whatever place you find yourself in, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, what? Remain there and seek the Lord. But this is the standard, and it's a hard standard to follow after because he is very clear, because we've got to take marriage serious. Do you know that there is no distinction between divorces within the church and those without of the church? The latest Barnard research has shown that 52% of marriages end up in divorce, and there is no distinction between those within the church or those out of the church. It is a sad state of affairs. And so Paul is exercising his pastoral authority. But what's interesting is Paul does not have pastoral authority over the unbeliever. So in the unequally yoked relationship, he says, look, for the unbeliever, I don't have control over him. I don't have any authority over him. But you, Mr. or Mrs. Believer, I do have authority over. And this is what I'm telling you you should do. You should remain in that marriage especially if there's children, because your presence sanctifies the house. What does that mean? Is it transferable holiness? No. It does not say, and Paul does not mean, that the believing wife, her faith, is also credited on behalf of the unbelieving husband, so now he's saved because they're one flesh. That is not what he's saying. Same with the children. No. Sanctification means that her presence as a believer in that household is ushering in the presence of the Lord and to have that impact on the Lord and not to seek that relationship, to seek to get out of that relationship because 
of that sanctifying force. And even if the unbelieving husband is not saved, it still is going to have an impact on the children, isn't it? So whatever the believing spouse is, they're to stay there as long as that, that unbeliever is pleased to dwell. Yet, verse 15, it says, If the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage. In such cases, God has called us to peace. So if the unbeliever wants to leave, there's nothing you can do about it because they're not under the authority of God. They need to, they need to be freed from that. And if they are to free then you better be really nice to them, even in the divorce, and be kind to them, because God has not called us to war, but to peace within this. So within this, we we got to look at this, but we say, well, how does this reconcile with verse 11, where verse 11 says, if you leave, she should remain unmarried. Well, that's because in verse 11, they're both believers. But in this case, it's believer-unbeliever. That's in that. And called to live in peace. Peter would mention this again in his letter. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-6, through 6, it says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. And I know, women, you hear that word submissive and you don't like it. The word submissive there is hupotasso. It means to place in proper authority and order. It doesn't speak to equity. So in the military, and it's a military term, a sergeant is going to be over a lieutenant. But the sergeant is no better person than the lieutenant is. They are equitable in who they are, but in structure and authority, there has to be a chain of command. And so in God's chain of command, it's God, Jesus, husband, wife, children. That's hupotasso. That's the order. And that is for the structure order, because what ends up happening is God holds the husband or the man in the house accountable for everything that goes on in the house. And it's imperative. So the women, you've got this greatest thing. When your husband's doing something that is just a real bonehead job, here's what Wendy does to me. You can make the decision, and then you can answer to God for this. And I go, crud. Because then it all rests on me. But she's right. Because I have to give that answer to God. And so she hupotassos and then puts me in my place. So Peter goes on, so husband, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, that they may be one without a word by behavior of their wives. And as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, notice that your adornment must not be merely external in the braiding of the hair, the wearing of gold and jewelry and putting on dress, but let it be the inner person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive Hupotasso to their husband, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened in any fear. So what Peter says is, don't work so hard on the outside, work on the inside. And let the beauty come from within. And I can tell you this, you do that, your husband will melt. 
and he will, he will cherish you. But if you are boisterous and loud and harsh and, and overbearing, it's a battle. And it shouldn't be so. What is Paul's bottom line here? Believers should never initiate divorce. Ever. They should be the sanctifying force in the relationship. Not the initiators of division within that. And if there's an unbeliever, they should, they should look at that as an opportunity for evangelism and win that soul. Because marriage, get this, is only for a short period of time, but eternity is forever. And you may be in that marriage relationship for a short period of time, but that person you're married to will spend eternity in, in, in heaven or hell much by how you evangelize. And it's super important. And we're to be at peace wherever God puts us. In verses 17 to 24, he goes on. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you were able also, become free and do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men, brethren. Each one is to remain with God in what condition in which he was called. So Paul says, okay, let me give you some illustrations here. One of the illustrations is, is in, in the standard, as he, it's called a chiasm, so he brackets it. Verse 17 and verse 24 both say the same thing. Whatever condition you find yourself, remain. Here's the examples that are, that are given within this. That each one of you has a status. Each one. Every one of you, and myself included, those watching online, we all came to the Lord in, in, and entered into a status. If you're in a marriage relationship, then that's your status. If you're in singleness, your status. That, if you're widowed, that's status. That is where you're at, and you're to remain there until the Lord changes that status. Not something that you do as a sign of holiness or to undo what God has called you to do, but God calls you to faith. And... As I said, the, the single person, if there's an issue, go ahead and perceive what God's going to do, but enter into that marriage relationship. But in this example of, of 18 to 24, he draws two examples. One's circumcision and, and then the other one's slavery. So he says, look it. And it's not really about circumcision, it's about being a Jew or a Gentile. Circumcision was a condition of the Jews. We know that based on Genesis chapter 17, verses 10 to 14. It was a covenant relationship that was established that God said, I'm going to make a covenant with Abraham and all the seed of Abraham. And everyone that's going to be a Jew from the seed of Abraham would be circumcised, which is always comical to me. God's got this huge sense of humor. Because he says to the Jews, I want you to come out and be separate from the world. And I'm going to give you a sign that's going to prove that you need to be separate from the world. And the sign that God chose, he could have done a tattoo on the back of the hand. He could have done one on the forehead. He could have done just about anything. But the one thing that will always trip up men 
is sexual activity. You can hide an awful lot of things, but if you're a Jew and you go after a Gentile, which God said don't do, there's going to be one part of your anatomy that's eventually going to be found out. And that's the sign. The Gentiles were uncircumcised. And so that was a distinction between Jew and Gentile. So what Paul is saying, if you're a Jew, don't try to be uncircumcised. Or if you're a Jew, don't try to not be a Jew anymore. Just be in that condition that you're at. As a completed Jew, as a Christian, and the Jews that were getting saved should maintain the status of where they're at. Same with the Gentiles. There was a big push for Gentiles that were getting saved to go and be circumcised. Great conflict that was going on. If you really want to be a Christian, you're going to go get circumcised. No. Paul says circumcision and uncircumcision is no big deal. Now, if you're a Jew and you hear this, is that offensive? Absolutely it's offensive. Why? Why making the statement that it doesn't matter, circumcision doesn't matter, why is that a big deal? Because everything within the Jewish culture and faith is based off the covenant promise of circumcision. So disavowing circumcision is throwing away their history. Paul says, no, that doesn't matter. What matters is your relationship with Christ. The body of Christ is made up of both Jew and Gentile. There's not to be any division at all. And the one goal is to be an obedient to Christ. The second illustration was slave versus three, or free men. And so within this, you have the slaves and you have the free men that were part of the, the Roman culture. Now, if you were a slave, were you a, a high class or a low class citizen? Low class, right? You were a slave. You were, you were bottom rung. If you were free, you would be considered high class within that. And so what Paul is saying here, in the context, he says that there is no division. If you're, if you're a slave, then understand that you were bought by Christ. And if you're free, you're a slave to Christ. There's no distinction because it all funnels down to your relationship with Christ. And so you need to, to live within the status that is there. You, you belong to Christ. Whatever condition that you find Christ in, it doesn't demand a change to become more righteous. Can I be a slave and be in a uh, fellowship relationship with a free person? The answer is absolutely what? Yes, because we're both in Christ. But what was happening is slaves were coming saved and they were saying to their their Christian masters, I'm a slave now and I'm a brother in Christ. You need to treat me different. Well, you're, you're being treated pretty good, but I need, a, I need an increase. I don't need to be a slave. Just make me free. I'm now a Christian, so make me free. Well, the culture didn't work that way. Slavery was part of the workforce. It was part of the labor force that was there. The Christian masters will be dealt with differently on how they are to treat their slaves and they were to treat them well. The slaves were to work just as hard. One of the things that was another problem that they were having was the slaves stopped working so hard. Because after all, they're Christian brothers. And so they don't want to work. Years ago, 
we had the opportunity um, at, at the first church I was at to um, do quite a bit of construction work. We did a, a huge remodel. And I remember I was overseeing two large remodel jobs. They were both about a million dollar projects. And um, in the first one, I, I, I made some a lot of bad mistakes. I'd never overseen a project, worked with general managers. I was liaison with them. And, and so we had a lot of uh, Christian brothers who were contractors within the church that wanted to come in and work for the church. And they wanted, to, they wanted to get on the job, and they wanted to do that. And, and it was probably one of the biggest mistakes I ever made was putting them on the, on the job, on the payroll, to do the work. Because they were the most slothful, lazy, entitled people on the whole job site. And the problem was I couldn't confront them, because they went to our church. And so I determined on the second remodel that I wasn't going to hire any contractors from our church to do the work. Because I didn't want to run into that problem where we were breaking fellowship and get into a conflict because the work needed to be done, but they weren't, doing, they weren't finishing it on time. They weren't doing good work within that. Yet they were expecting the paycheck. And it worked beautifully the second time. We didn't have a problem within that. The, the one that, that really got me, though, and I may have shared this with you before, was before I became a, a Christian, I, I worked in a print shop, and I worked really hard, hard-working, family print shop. Um, Mary Lou Phillips was, was the owner of the shop and treated me like family. She made me lunch, like every day with the family. I mean, it was, I didn't have back lunch. She made me lunch all the time. And I was super excited because I accepted the Lord and came in and I said, Mary Lou, you, you're not going to believe this. I accept the Lord. She goes, what? I said, yeah, I accept the Lord. You became a Christian? Yeah, I did. And her face just became downcast and sad. I, go, I thought you'd be excited. Why aren't you excited? She goes, I'm going to have to fire you. I said, why? She goes, because every Christian I've, that has ever worked for me has been lazy. All they want to do is come in late, talk about the Bible, read their Bible, and talk with the other people. I can't have that. We're a production company. And I learned, I learned the, a very valuable lesson and determined that I would be the hardest working person and employee that they had to prove that not everybody is like that. And it was a great relationship with them. So as Paul is dealing with these slaves or these free, we've got to find whatever place that we come to the Lord, we need to represent Christ and obey Christ. And, and the change that needs to be made is the vert vertical. Our life belongs to God. You were called by God and saved, and God owns you. And whatever condition you find yourself in, continue in that condition, and, and the Lord will direct your steps. Lastly, Paul describes the benefits of singleness. Take a look at verses 25 to 40. He goes on, he says, Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give my opinion. Notice there's opinion. It's, a, it's like Scotty on Wednesday mornings. Big sign. Opinion. I give an opinion as one by the mercy of the Lord that's trustworthy. I think that it is good in view of, of the present distress, that it's good for a man to remain as he is, are you bound to a wife or do you not seek to be released? Or do you release 
from a wife, do not seek a wife. And if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, that the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they have none, and those who weep as though they do not weep, and, and those who rejoice as though they do not rejoice, and, and, and those who buy as though they do not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make uh, full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be free from all concern. One who is unmarried is unconcerned about the things of the Lord and how he may please the Lord. And the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world and how will he please his wife and his interests are divided. And the woman who is unmarried and the virgin who is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world. How should we, will she please her husband? This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion. There's the key. How do I have undistracted devotion to the Lord? Now, if any man thinks he's acting unbecoming towards a virgin daughter, if she passed her youth, and it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do also do well. So then, both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well. He who does not give her daughter in marriage will also do better. And a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she's happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. So what does Paul do? Well, he, he walks through, and first of all, he says, look it. He says, to those that are engaged, which is this first section here in, in 25 and 26, to those that are engaged, it's better if you just stay single. Why? Throughout this last section, he talks about the present crisis or the distress. He had this concept, and his eschatology says that Jesus is coming back soon at any time. Don't complicate your life and live with good mobility. Now, we know that this happened over you know, almost 2,000 years ago, so we know that 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 eminent return is, is not there, but the concept is still the same. As a young person, he is worried about them engaging in hardships, in difficulties that will complicate their witness and their testimony. I know a lot of young people working with the, the next-gen group and, and the teens, the most mobile people in the church are the unmarried. I can take them to the mission field, they can teach Sunday school class, they have all these things going on. But when you get married and then you have kids, it becomes a lot harder. It really does. To the unmarried, you don't have to say, you know, I, I want to do that, but let me check with my wife. I want to do that, let me check with my husband. Right? To the unmarried, you can say, yeah, I could do it. I don't have to check with anybody. I have that opportunity to be able to go to, to be able to do that. So, and then Paul reiterates his, his uh, statements earlier on marriage. It brings about, if you're, if you're married, then remain married. If you're divorced, stay single. And he goes on and reiterates that and to understand that these times in their lives are difficult and it's going to get worse. But in verses 32 to 35, he talks about this, this duplicity. 
In James chapter 1, verse 8, it says, Being a double-minded man, you're unstable in all his ways. Duplicity robs us of opportunity. We never know what the Lord's going to do or, or how he's going to move us and to be able to, to be available. And so whether you're engaged or you're married or whether you're about to be married or you're widowed, Paul is emphasizing the opportunity to be mobile for the Lord, to not be so tied down to the things of the world that are there. The last little bit of advice was, again, the advice to to the widow. So you think, well, how long do I need to stay married to somebody? He reiterates that. How long should a married couple stay together as a married couple? Until one dies. Right? Then they're free. Why? Because it is until death do they part. They're set free from that, that, that covenant relationship because the person graduates and goes to be with the Lord. And then remain single. So all of this chapter has everything to do with whatever place God has got you, remain there. You're not going to become any more holy by trying to change your status, whether single or married or widowed or any of these other things. But we live in a world and we live in, in, in body and we have need for companionship. And so within that, honor the covenant relationship of companionship. If you're single, you can serve the Lord. If you're married, you are still one. Serve the Lord together. And just don't leave room for Satan to bring destruction. If you're married in the Lord, then be married in the Lord. In body, soul, and spirit. Because the days are getting difficult, aren't they? Time is short. And Jesus can come back at any time. And may he find faith when he returns. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you, God, that, that through Paul you are challenging us, just as in the church of Corinth, to really have a, a view for the heavens, to be able to see what it is that, that you want us to do in the context of evangelism. And sometimes evangelism is even in our own homes. We know that Satan wants to divide and destroy we know that so many times we get to a place where we lose sight of, of what you're doing because we're so earthly minded. Lord, I pray you break that. God, you are a good God. A loving God. And you've given to us relationships both in marriage and friendships and in the church body. May we continue to serve you with the totality of our being. And may everything that you do in our lives be things that you do in our lives that, that will bring us to a place of worshiping you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Of you, Lord. Oh, your mercy never fails me. All my days I've been held in your hands. From the moment that I wake up until I lay my head. Of the goodness of God. All my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. 
with every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. I love your voice. You have led me through the fire in darkest night. You are close like no other. I've known you as a father. I've known you as a friend. I have lived in the goodness of God. All my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. Let this be our benediction again. All my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. With every breath, with every breath that I am able, I will sing, I will sing of the goodness. the goodness of God. Everyone said, Amen. Praise Jesus. Have a good rest of your week. for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 6.30 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scapoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.